It is lesson number 128 called the Denunciation Discourse, Part 1. It's not exactly one of those things that I would um, normally pick, you know, choose to teach on, but when you teach, as we're doing, going through a study chronologically, you get to things like this. It's when the Lord denounces the religious leaders. And I really wanted to start our lesson by just reading the whole discourse for you. It's 39 verses, and I'll try to read as fast as I can. But I want you to get the discourse in your mind. You've all heard bits and pieces of it before, so when we read through it, you'll remember it. But um, I want to read it, and then we'll get into our lesson, because as I give an introduction, then you'll be more familiar with what I'm talking about, okay? So open your Bibles to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. It says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Now, what does that make them? They say one thing and don't do it. Hypocrites. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men rabbi, rabbi. But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Now that is as far as we're going to get today in our study. But I want to read the rest of the discourse anyway. And this is what we'll look at next week. Where he starts out in verse 13. Now, instead of directly talking to the multitude, the Passover multitude and his disciples, he is speaking directly to who? The scribes and the Pharisees. He may be even pointing at them as he says the rest of the chapter. He says, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, this is what they say, whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon the altar, or upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whosoever, whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth thereon, therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. 
Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye have done and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets." Fill ye up, then, the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes. Notice that, scribes? Maybe that scribe from last week, that lawyer, was one of those that Jesus says he's going to send. And some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barchias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And did it? That generation, like 40 years later, 70 A.D.? All these things came upon that generation. And then we have the Lord's wailing over his beloved Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. It was his 11th recorded sermon in his life, and it is his last public sermon. And it's found most completely in Matthew 23, as you see, 39 verses. It's also a little bits and pieces of it are found in Mark and Luke, but we're going to look at Matthew 23. After this, after this sermon, we find Jesus speaking almost exclusively to his own followers. And his remaining sermons, such as the Olivet Discourse, are exclusively to and for his own men, his disciples. Now, it's interesting that in Matthew's gospel, which is where we are, um, both the Lord's first and last public sermons, which would be, what was the first sermon found in Matthew? Right, the Sermon on the Mount, that's the first, and the last, which is this denunciation discourse, it's interesting that both the first and the last contain very harsh words of condemnation against who? 
against the spiritual leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, mostly. You know, he doesn't really speak against the Sadducees because they're so far out there. He doesn't really bother much with them. They don't know what they believe. They don't believe in much of anything. Well, the first sermon, however, which was the Sermon on the Mount, it was given up in Galilee. You know, very early in the Lord's ministry, he gave that sermon up in Galilee, and there was a big crowd there, but there were probably few, if any, religious leaders in attendance. They usually hovered around Jerusalem. There might have been a a scribe or a Pharisee or a synagogue ruler, you know, there in attendance, but... We notice in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, that he spoke, 5, 6, and 7, excuse me, that he spoke about the religious rulers. He wasn't really speaking to them, because like I said, there were probably few of them there. He spoke about them. Remember when he said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. And he said things like, therefore, when you do your alms, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. And he said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. So he was speaking about the religious rulers. Whereas in this last sermon, in Matthew 23, there were definitely religious rulers present. And we know that beginning in verse 13 because he talks directly to them, doesn't he? When he says, woe unto you, he's probably pointing a finger at them. Remember, he's just had four confrontations with them. So there are, and where is he now? He's not up in Galilee. He's in Jerusalem of Judea. And where is he located precisely? In the temple. He's in the temple. And so he speaks directly to the, um, the, the, the religious rulers. Now, this Matthew 23 sermon, or discourse, you know, sermon, discourse, same thing, is the most sustained attack on official Judaism recorded in the scripture by the Lord Jesus. I mean, it's just boom, boom, boom. You heard me as I read it. It's the longest sustained attack against official Judaism. And it's interesting to me, again, as I was comparing the Lord's first public sermon and the last public sermon, you know, the eight woes, and by the way, I circled all the woes in this chapter, and there's eight of them, eight times he says woe. They uh, are the polar opposite of the eight beatitude blessings which began the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how the Sermon on the Mount begins? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he goes on and he says, blessed are those who mourn. You know, mourn over what? Their own sin. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed uh, blessed are the, um, the, uh, the pure in heart. And blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness sake. Well, when you think about those eight beatitude blessings, they were spoken for true kingdom citizens. Contrast them to the eight woes, which are like curses that he spoke against the religious rulers. Did the religious rulers have any poverty of spirit or uh, mournfulness over their own sin? Um, Were they meek? No. Did they hunger and thirst after righteousness? No, they already thought they had righteousness. I mean, you go down the list. Did they enjoy being persecuted by Jesus? None of them fit. You know, none of the Beatitudes bless, uh, fit, fit a description of the, of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, there's another word that dominates this sermon besides woe, and that is the word 
hypocrite. What were they? They thought they were true kingdom citizens, but they weren't at all. They weren't even close. Like at least the scribe was, you know, not far from. They weren't even close to being into the in the kingdom of God. They were a bunch of hypocrites. So that word is also found eight times because every time he says, whoa, he also throws in the word hypocrite. Now, another thing, another characteristic that makes this last sermon stand out is the Lord's use of derogatory denunciations. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah, quite a, quite a few derogatory denunciations. That's why it's called the denunciation discourse, because he denounces them. He calls them children of hell in verse 15. He calls them blind guides two times. He calls them fools and blind two times. He calls them blind Pharisees one time. He really accentuated their hypocrisy and their blindness, didn't he? He called them whited sepulchers, which is like a, you know, a tombstone full of dead men's bones. He called them uh, outwardly righteous, but full of iniquity. He said they were children of murderers. He also called them serpents. And what else? A generation of vipers. Wow. From the compassionate Jesus. You know, it just tells us what he thought of false religious teachers. He he did not hold back. You know, if a person calls himself or herself a Christian, quote unquote a Christian, and has this idea that in religion all views are relative and any faith and practice, as long as it's sincere, will make do. You know, as long as the person has a faith, it doesn't matter what that faith is, as long as he's sincere in his faith, he'll, he'll turn out all right. He'll make it to heaven. If a, if a person calling himself a Christian says that, has that little philosophy, you know what that person needs to do? He needs to sit down and read this sermon, this denunciation discourse, where the Lord denounced the Pharisees' religion. And he didn't do so just here in Matthew 23. He spoke about them in the Sermon on the Mount. You can look at Luke 11, uh, verses 37 to 54, where he said many of these same things. It was just more consistent. Concise, but it basically he said, you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites. Religion. And do you, do you think there are people who call themselves Christians who have that philosophy, by the way? If you don't think so, you're, you, you're like an ostrich with your head in the sand. And Frank and, 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 and mine, Frank, mine and Frank's spiritual walk with the Lord, we, um, we started out, well, I started out, you know, in Greek Orthodoxy, but then after uh, I got saved, Frank and I, we're in a Protestant church, mainline denominational church, where here, here we are, both brand new Christians, and we're sitting in the adult Sunday school class, and the man teaching the class, who also was an elder in the church, said this. I kid you not. This is what he said. He said, you know, I've given it a lot of thought. And I have come to the, to the mind, you know, the opinion that who are we to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? I mean, he might be the way for the Western Hemisphere. But how could, how, you know, who are we to say that Muhammad or, or Buddha or Harry Krishna or someone else couldn't be the way to heaven for the Eastern Hemisphere? I, and I'm sitting there, a baby Christian and I'm thinking, what? Didn't Jesus Christ say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No man comes to the Father but by me? If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you need to believe Jesus. 
or throw him out, you know. But don't call yourself a Christian and say you don't believe Jesus' words, that he's the only way. You know, but people have this idea, and it's in the church. I don't mean the true church, but it's within Christendom, and that's not the exception anymore. You know, I brought that verse up to the guy. I thought, well, I'm just going to tell him, you know, what about John 14, 6? And he said, oh, well, that's just your opinion. That's just my opinion. That's Jesus. Needless to say, we didn't last very long at that church, okay? But um, people do have this idea that religion is a big, giant mountain, and on the top is heaven. And there are many roads that, you know, go up the mountain to heaven. Many roads lead to it. But Jesus taught absolutely the contrary to that idea. Now, that might sound good to, to fallen sinful man, you know, but his ways are not our ways. If, if we made it up, we probably said, okay, all roads do lead to heaven because we'd be, you know, good. We want everybody to get to heaven, don't we? But that's not the way God designed it. There is only one way to God, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. And any teaching that distorts or masks that way and keeps people from it is damnable. Did you notice he talked about damnation, greater damnation? He talked about hell in here. Any way that distorts the true way is heresy. It's damnable teaching. The Lord Jesus, now he is, people would look at this and they say, ah, Jesus, you're supposed to be so compassionate and such a, you know, understanding person. How could you speak like this to people? But, um... The, the Lord Jesus is the most compassionate man that ever that ever walked earth. He is compassion personified. And he is very much aware of all of our faults. And he's very patient with us in our faults. He's very much aware of our failures. And he's very much patient with us in our failures. But when it comes to faith, he never suggested for even a moment that he would be patient with any other faith but the true faith. He's patient with our failures and our faults, but faith he is very serious about. Now, as we look at his final public sermon, we need to keep in mind the primary reason why Israel's leaders opposed Jesus so violently that they wanted to kill him. It was because they feared the loss of everything that they held dear and everything they possessed in this world. Their positions of power, their livelihood, their wealth, their security. To their thinking, as long as Jesus was alive, he was a very serious threat to them, wasn't he? And so... They wanted to kill him. The tragedy is that they were supposed to be the spiritual guides, the spiritual leaders of the nation, God's representatives and messengers to the people. They were supposed to be teaching the people the truth about God and his word so that the people then could go out from Israel and be witnesses to the whole rest of the world. But... But they, they, they were so far removed from God. Now, we've said this many times in our study, but they were so far removed from God and from knowing God that they didn't recognize him when he came, you know, in, in the person of his son. In spite of all the proofs, in spite of all the appeals regarding the truth of the Lord's identity, they refused to believe and follow him. And he had given them many proofs, not only in his miracles, but in his words, in his person, in his sinless person. Just think of the confrontations he's had with them, how his deity just shines forth 
in his spoken word. And um, he made it clear even from scripture who he was. His genealogical record proved everything. And yet they refused to come to him. Instead, they chose to follow the way of the world by plotting how they might manage to eliminate him. And it's against this background of now some three and a half years of him ministering in Israel that he you know, kept running up against their willful unbelief. It's against that dark background that he finally gives them this denunciation discourse. We're told that he directly addressed, look at verse 1, he directly addressed the Passover multitude. Now he must have a big crowd around him by this time because he's confronted the Sanhedrin council, he's confronted the, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and then that scribe. And so, you know, as, with each confrontation, I can just picture the crowd growing bigger and bigger. So he's speaking to the multitudes, and particularly we want to remember that his disciples are there. It says he also addresses his disciples. It's important for them to hear this denunciation discourse. And yet, as we know, when we look ahead at verses 13 to to the end of the chapter, the um, scribes and Pharisees were obviously still there too. They're within listening distance. And we know this because he speaks to them when he says, whoa. So they hear the whole sermon. They hear even the first um, seven verses that we'll be talking about. Now, you know that ever since the fall of man, there have been, this world has had its false religious leaders. Actually, it started with Adam. You know, he tried to have a false religion and cover his own sin with what? A fig leaf. And then you go to his son Cain, and he tried to do, have his own religion by offering to God on the altar, you know, the works of his own hands instead of a blood offering. Um, so the world has always had its false religious leaders, those who set themselves up as God's representatives when they really only represent themselves. And, of course, they would never admit this, but who are they really working for? Satan, exactly. It was such an evil group of men who conspired under wicked Nimrod to build the Tower of Babel, which was nothing more than the first uh, corporate humanistic attempt to reach heaven man's way. They were trying to reach heaven corporately, you know, by building this giant tower, Tower of Babel. Of course, that idea was whispered into the ears of men by none other than the evil one. And scripture throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, scripture continuously warns its readers that false religionists will always oppose the true gospel. The Lord Jesus spoke about in the latter days, in the time of the tribulation, there will be many false Christs. And false prophets who shall show great and mighty wonders so much so that they might even deceive the elect if the Lord didn't return. Uh, Paul speaks about, um, many times he speaks about religious deceivers and he, he calls them preachers of a perverted gospel. And those who give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. It is the Satan, you know, Satanic. And you know, whenever in the scripture it talks about the doctrines, the false doctrines, it's always plural, because there are many, many doctrines of devils and seducing spirits. They're plural. Many, many false religions and cults. So it's always doctrines, plural. But whenever it speaks about the true faith, Christianity, it says the doctrine, singular. That's just something... I've mentioned that to you before, but it's, it's, it's interesting. And Paul says that they speak lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. The apostle John simply called all false religionists and anyone who didn't believe in the true Christ 
antichrists. They're all antichrists who openly deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You know, we're to test the spirits. How do you know if somebody's teaching the truth? Test the spirits. First John 4, 1. How do you test the spirits? Ask him if Jesus Christ is the God-man. The God-man. Like we talked about last week. Not only the Son of David, but the Son of God. Uh, Adonai. Jude called them dreamers who defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. They even speak evil of holy things is what that word is. Not God. They speak evil of God and everything associated with God that is holy. And then Peter referred to such counterfeits as those who... This is an important verse. This is 2 Peter 2.1. He speaks of them as those who secretly bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. Now, if you're not in 2 Peter 2, 1, you might want to just flip over there. This is in your books, but the rest of what I'm going to say is not in your books. Uh, This is like a little side thought here, but I wanted to tell you about this verse. I don't know if you've heard of the doctrine that is very prevalent today, which is called the doctrine of limited atonement. When I was a young Christian, someone tried to proselytize me to believe in the doctrine of limited atonement. Limited atonement teaches that Jesus Christ died on the cross only for the elect. He did not die for the sins of the whole world. He only died for those who would believe on him. Therefore, you cannot just go to somebody on the street and say, the Lord Jesus died for you. Because you might not know that Jesus died for them. Maybe they aren't one of the elect. This is called the doctrine of limited atonement. And uh, you, you might even be in a church that teaches this. But here is a verse. You know, I don't care what men teach. I care what the Bible teaches. Here is a verse that is very strongly it tells us that the doctrine of limited atonement is not true. Who is he talking about there in 2 Timothy 2.1? He's talking about those who bring in damnable heresies. He is talking about false teachers, false prophets. And he says that they do what? They even deny the Lord that bought them. Bought them? Where did the Lord buy them? On the cross. He bought them on the cross. So that means he paid for the sins of the whole world on the cross. They don't accept that, that he bought, he paid the price for their sins. They don't accept that, so they're not saved. But that doesn't mean that he didn't die for their sins. You see? Now, there is another verse in Scripture which is even more clear against limited atonement, and that would be 1 John 2, 2, where it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, which means he satisfied God by paying the price for our sin. Now, John was talking to believers. He was writing to believers. He says he's the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sin. And then he goes on and says, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Okay, I don't know how much more clear it could be. 
The doctrine of limited atonement goes against the teaching of Scripture, the clear teaching of Scripture. You have to change words to mean other things to, to get around the, the doctrine of limited atonement. And now because I did all that, I'll probably run over time. But I just want you to know that because that is out there and it's prevalent within Christendom. Well, so the sole purpose of false teachers, no matter how misguided, no matter how um, sincere they might be, the whole purpose of false teaching is to corrupt and destroy God's message of truth regarding salvation in Jesus Christ, and likewise to corrupt and destroy God's people. And this is what Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes was all about. You see, they represented a style of a religion and a system of belief that directly conflicted with the heart of the gospel message. Jesus came to offer forgiveness and instant salvation the moment a sinner believed on him, put their faith in him, and, you know, the sin... The, the freedom that he purchased on the cross, that he died for our sins. But the religious rulers of Israel over the years had manufactured a complex, burdensome system of works and rituals and traditions to, uh, to be followed that made salvation actually a human work. You know, not only did they take the 613 commandments that are given in the Mosaic Law and say you people have to obey all of those, but they added to those laws all their own little traditions and rules. Remember how many rules and regulations they had just about the Sabbath day? All God said is keep, you know, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. But they said you can't, you can only walk so far, you can't pluck out a gray, you can't look in a mirror because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to plunk it out and that would be a... That would be a work, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they made salvation something you just had to work for. You know, i got to keep all these laws and rules and ceremonies, et cetera, et cetera. As Romans 10.3 says, they were ignorant of God's righteousness and sought to establish their own righteousness. And therefore, there was no way because they had, developed, they had taken Judaism and turned it into a system of works. So there was no way that Jesus could avoid confrontation with them. He had to conflict with them. He had to confront them, not only for the sake of their own souls, and that's what this is all about, is trying to get their attention, and of course to warn the multitudes against them and the disciples, but he had to confront them for the sake of their own soul, their souls and for, for the sake of the souls that they were leading astray. They were leading the whole nation astray. Even worse than leading them astray, they were leading the people right down the road to destruction. So he made, it, he made his disapproval of the religious system of that day just as plain and as prominent and as public as he possibly could just about every time he mentioned them. He, he wasn't moved by their frustrations about his bold outspokenness. Often, we've noticed, he would even do or say something intentionally, purposely, to get them upset, <laughs> to get their attention, such as he would heal someone on the Sabbath day. 
right there even in the synagogues, you know, and to, to get their attention, to basically tell them, you know, you've, you've done what to the Sabbath, what I never intended. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and it's a good thing to heal somebody on the Sabbath day. Or he would uh, say to someone, your sins are forgiven. Now, that really would get them all bent out of shape, wouldn't it? Who do you think you are forgiving someone's sins? Or what else did he do on two occasions? He went into the temple and he cleansed it. So he, you know, he would purposely do and say things that he knew would offend them. He didn't extend a pretense of academic courtesy to them. He did not try to use an ultra-minimalistic approach that listened sympathetically to them and, you know, minimalized all their doctrinal differences. He didn't demonstrate flexibility with his own point of view and affirm as much as possible so that he spent more time and energy agreeing with them than disagreeing with them. You know, he he wasn't one of these mamby-pamby kind of guys, you know, like the ecumenical movement today, which has extended even into evangelical fundamentalism, where they all get together and they say, well, we're academically, we're going to um, discuss things. And we're not going to stress the points of doctrinal difference. You know, doctrine really isn't that important anyway. There's this emergent church movement is putting aside doctrine. Doctrine's not so important. You know, we just love the brotherhood. We all need to just come together and let's talk about the points where we agree, not the doctor, the, the points where we disagree. The virgin birth, you know, it's not that important. The deity of Christ, eh, it's not that important. The resurrection, the bodily resurrection, Jesus, you know, we can put all that aside. So let's just academically, we're civilized, let's all come together. Did Jesus do that? Reread this sermon. Oh no, he didn't do that at all. He didn't carefully avoid points of truth that were likely to offend. Uh, he did just the opposite. You know, he didn't look for, for, um, for those areas of common ground. Now he could have... Because the Pharisees weren't all bad, were they? I mean, I like them a whole lot better than I like the Sadducees. At least they believed in the divine inspiration of Scripture. At least they believed in the resurrection and the afterlife in a spiritual world. So he could have talked about the common ground that he had with them and developed that. But he did just the opposite. He stressed the points on which he disagreed with them. And I say all of this to point out that the Lord's approach with the religious error of his day is sharply different from the methods that are preferred in many churches today. The boldness with which he assaulted error is in serious short supply today. Wouldn't you say that the church needs to pay more careful attention to how Jesus dealt with things than with how academia might deal with things or civilized man might you know isn't he supposed to be our example how did he deal with false religionists how did he deal with false doctrine Uh, how did he defend truth and we should pay closer attention to who and what he commended and who and what he condemned don't you think If we're going to call ourselves little Christ Christians, he is our example. And like I said, man, he didn't pull any punches when it came to false teaching. The last thing we need to do in these postmodern times in which we live, and we have gone beyond liberalism, ladies. 
I've, I've been reading a book. That we're not even in liberalism anymore. We're into postmodernism, which means that basically people are becoming more and more atheistic. You know, liberals means that they get, you know, we're still Christians, but, but they're very liberal in what they say about things. But um, now we're into where people are becoming more and more atheistic. It's scary. But uh, the last thing we need to do when the enemies of truth are devoted to making everything regarding the scripture and the gospel message as fuzzy as they can make it, the last thing we need to do is to pledge to be doctrinally friendly so that we don't offend anyone. The truth mattered more to Jesus than how people felt about it or about him. He wasn't interested in calling people to like him. He could have been very well-liked. He could have been the most well-liked and loved person that, well, he is, but he could have done it by just going around being nice to everybody, never confronting anybody, just healing people and being sweet, making them plenty of food to eat all the time. He could have been very well-liked, but he wasn't interested in having people just like him. He was calling out those who were willing to bow to him as Lord. His approach, therefore, in trying to turn people away from the heresies of the Pharisees. Don't you like that little phrase? I thought that would make a good poem. Heresies of the Pharisees. His approach was not to make his message sound as much like the popular beliefs of his day as he could. And that's what made his teaching so vastly different from what the people had been hearing from their own spiritual leaders. And why people were astonished at his doctrine. Why were they astonished at his doctrine? Because he t- spoke the truth. He didn't uh, cover it up. He, didn't, he, he always taught them as, as one having authority, not like the scribes. And he knew full well where his bold teaching was going to take him. You know, as he's, he's getting awfully close to the cross. You know, if it was you, wouldn't you might maybe not be quite so... These guys already want to kill him, and yet he's getting, wo- saying, Woe to you, you whited sepulchers, you hypocrites, you blind guides, bang, 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 serpents, generation of vipers. Oh, I wish I could be that bold, but I don't think I would have been that bold. But uh, he, he knew where this was going to take him, right to the cross, but he spoke the truth no matter how much it offended people and their traditions. And he spoke, he, he knew this would inflame their determination to kill him, but he did it anyway. Now, pragmatists, pragmatists would say that he should have kept a lower profile. They would say to Jesus, you know, maybe you should have ministered in less public places, or perhaps, Jesus, you should have even gone underground where you could teach just those who were receptive to your message rather than continually antagonizing those who already hate you and envy you. That's what a pragmatist would have said to Jesus. But think about it. The very most hurtful thing that Jesus could ever have done would have been to have compromised or to have pretended that the spiritual danger posed by the doctrine of the Pharisees and their hypocritical external behavior was not really so serious. You know, it's not these guys are basically good. Yeah, they're full of ego and they're teaching you false things and they're making what it should be just grace into works, but, eh, you know, they're good. They're good guys, so let's not, you know, and not be so harsh with them. 
um, and, and say it's not so serious. But it was serious, wasn't it? What they were teaching was deadly serious, eternally deadly serious. The people had to be warned about the false spiritual leaders of that day and of days to come. And the disciples needed to hear this. So we find that the Lord's stress, his stress, I guess we could, if we boiled this whole discourse down, we could say that he is basically saying, don't be like them. Men, disciples, one of them already was. One of them was a hypocrite, Judas. Don't be like them. They trust in themselves that they are righteous. You know, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness. They, they already thought they were kingdom citizens. They, they loved their own righteousness. They liked feeling good about themselves. And they trust in themselves. And what did they, did they love their neighbors as themselves? Hardly. They despised their neighbors. They looked down on everyone else. They tell others, Jesus is saying in this sermon, they tell others what to do. They tell others what not to do. And they fail to live in accord with their own teaching. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They're obsessed and they're uh, preoccupied with nothing but externals. They pay infinite attention to where they sit, what they wear, how much they tithe. But they don't pay much attention at all to what they think about. They're very concerned with how they're perceived by others, but they don't really ever give a moment's thought to what God thinks of them. They're all caught up in their reputation, and they're not at all concerned about their true character. They're very concerned with uh, the praise of men. They're passionate about making sure that they receive honor, but they don't care about giving God praise or God honor um, from the genuineness of their hearts and the sincerity of their lives. So basically he's saying, don't be like them. They're religious. Oh, yes. They're very religious. I don't think there was ever a group as religious as the Pharisees. They're religious, but they're not at all real. So don't be like them. In the first seven verses of this sermon, he's speaking specifically, or yes, yeah, specifically to the Passover multitude and his own disciples, and he is seeking to rectify any mistaken ideas that they yet might have about the religious leaders. He wanted to reveal one last time because he knows his days are getting short. So he wants to reveal one more time the true colors of these false spiritual shepherds in order to remove the prejudices that many of the people had against him. Because the people, you know, like sheep, so many people just believe what they're told. Instead of having a mind like of their own, like that scribe, that lawyer, that's what made him stand out, right? He had a mind of his own. He was going to think for himself instead of being told what to believe and just following blindly the false shepherds. Um, Jesus wanted to <clears throat> expose the true colors of those false shepherds because the people were just still far too impressed and far too uh, intimidated by the titles and the pomp and the ceremony of their, of their religious leaders. You know, they were scared to death of being de-synagogued. So they would go the way of their spiritual leaders. And if their spiritual leaders basically said, Jesus is not the Messiah and they killed him, then the people would go along with that by and large. And isn't that exactly what they did do? The Jews to this day do not believe mostly, you know, there are exceptions, there are believing Jews, but... As a whole, Israel doesn't believe. Jewish people don't believe. And you know why? Because these Pharisees didn't believe. It all stems back to them. It goes back to them. 
So he's trying one last time to tell them about the true motive, the true character and the true motives of these false religious leaders. And he says in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They had seated themselves in the place of Moses. They love being the teachers. They love sitting in the place of Moses. They were assuming an authority that was not theirs to assume. The scripture never states that God assigned any authority to this group of men, these scribes and Pharisees. The only authority he ever ascribed to any man is this authority, his word. If the scribes and the the Pharisees took it upon themselves to be God's spokesmen, you know, to be the public teachers and the interpreters of God's law, as well as the judges of the law, then the word of God was to be their one and only authority. That's it. Not all of their man-made additional rules and regulations in their traditions. Now, when Jesus, in verse 3, commanded the people to observe and do what these men taught, he didn't mean that they were to obey the uh, the lies and the errors of their reinterpretations of the law, and that they necessarily had to you know believe all their man-made additions and traditions, etc. Rather, and do the scripture that these men read. Now, remember, people in that day did not have their own personal copy of God's word. Where did they hear the word of God? Where did they hear the scripture? In the synagogue when it was read to them by their religious rulers. So he says, you know, when they read the scripture, observe and do it. And um, inasmuch as they actually taught the scripture, the people were to take heed. The word of God is still the word of God, even when it comes from the mouths of false prophets. You do realize that. A hypocrite could come up here. I hope one isn't up here right now. (laughs) But it could read this word of God, and the word of God still has the power, doesn't it? I have known of people that have been saved in some of the strangest churches that you could imagine them being saved in, where the gospel wasn't even preached and where there's a lot of heresy, but someone read a, a verse from the scripture and the person got saved because the power is in the word. So even if a false prophet speaks the word, you know, the word has got the power. The great Bible commentator Matthew Henry said this. I like this. He said, although it is most desirable to have our food, he's talking about our spiritual food, brought to us by angels. Remember Jesus after the temptation of the wilderness, he had food brought to him by angels. He says, more desirable to have our food brought to us by angels. Yet if God sends us it to us by ravens, who was fed by ravens? Elijah. We still must take it and be thankful for it. That's true. He's saying, Matthew Henry is saying that although it is far better to receive spiritual nourishment from godly men and women, yet even if it comes from such hypocrites as the scribes and Pharisees, if they are preaching or teaching from the inspired scripture itself, at least be thankful to be fed from the scripture, right? So, you know, the people, at least they were hearing the word when they went to synagogue. They were hearing it being read. Hypocrites within the church... Now, you've all heard that excuse from somebody, right? For not going to church because the church is full of hypocrites. I heard this for five years from my own husband. Uh, You know, I'd say, let's go to church. No, I'm not going to go to church. It's full of hypocrites. Of course, when I finally got him to go to church, it was that guy that I told you about earlier was teaching the Sunday school class. (laughs) 
worse than a hypocrite. <laughs> but anyway, you know, a lot of people will give that excuse. I don't go to church. It's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. Um, but just because a church is full of tares, and yes, there's tares and wheat and tares in every church, and there's hypocrites in every church, doesn't mean that the church herself is evil. Just because there's hypocrites doesn't make the church of Jesus Christ evil. And it doesn't mean that just because there's hypocrites that you should neglect assembling yourself together with other believers. You can't just neglect the church because of that. That doesn't mean you can avoid the church. We're always to test the spirits to distinguish as best we can, you know, the true from the false, and go on worshiping God. Now, these people weren't like you and I, where you could, you know, if your church has got... Now, I wouldn't go to a church that, that I knew was being led by hypocrites. No way. I would get out of there in a hurry. But we have the advantage of being able to go down the street, go to another church that isn't being led by hypocrites, by, you know, godly people. But back then, there would be maybe one church in a whole city. So they, you know, he's, being, he's saying being thankful, be thankful to just be fed the word of God, no matter who it comes from. Well, Jesus con- condemned false religion, he condemned false teachers, and he condemned false practice, but he didn't condemn the truth, obviously, not the truth. Even false teachers and hypocrites can and do teach some truth. As we said before, the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching a lot of good truth, especially the fact that they were saying the whole Old Testament was God-inspired. The truth is not invalidated just because a hypocrite teaches it. And he was also saying that teaching the truth does not make a person automatically acceptable to God. That's a scary thing. Just because I'm up here and I teach you truth, I hope I always teach you truth. And, you know, you always need to test me, too, and make sure it agrees with the word of God. Um, But that doesn't mean, just because I'm teaching truth, doesn't mean that I am a godly person. I mean, you know, preaching and practice don't always go hand in hand. Why is that? Well, because we're all human. No matter what pastor, what great man of God it is, none of us, you know, we all fall short. We all fall short. But God's word never falls short. God's word is always perfect. So the safest thing to do is to stick to the book, isn't it? And you you can't go wrong. Well, in verse 3b, Jesus then said, in essence, but do not do according to their works. You know, when they read the word, that's good. Observe and do when they read the word. But don't do according to their works because they say one thing and they do another. Even when the religious rulers did teach God's word accurately, you know what they would do? They would often make loopholes for themselves so they could avoid obeying the word of God. We're going to see this when it gets into that whole thing about swearing, swearing by the gold on the altar and the altar and all that kind of stuff. Those are little loopholes they're making so that they could avoid obeying and, you know, making vows that they really had to keep. They made all kinds of little loopholes for themselves. What made them hypocrites is that they did not practice what they preached. They were uh, great talkers. But poor doers. They were like the parabolic son, remember him, who said, I go, sir, but never went. To the Pharisees and the scribes' perverted way of thinking, godly righteousness only consisted of outward obedience to the law of God. They weren't even close to being righteous in God's eyes because they completely 
They were all about externals. They completely ignored the inner condition of their hearts. Because they never took care, I mean, they didn't even begin with poor, you know, poverty of spirit. They never saw how bankrupt they were spiritually. And because they didn't take care of their heart condition by submitting themselves to God's will and to God's son, they couldn't possibly keep God's law, even if they had genuinely wanted to. They couldn't keep it. They had no spiritual resources to make such obedience possible. Can you imagine trying to to ever keep just the two great commandments, love your Lord God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself, (laughs) without the resource of God, the Holy Spirit, and, and his love being imputed to us? There's no way. That's why anyone in a false religion or a false cult, talk to them. If they're honest with themselves, they'll always feel frustrated. Because they never can feel they arrive. They don't have the resource within them. If they don't have God's spirit empowering them, there's no way they can keep even the rules and regulations of their own system, much less, you know, God's system. All the flesh can ever do, and that's what all other religions are, our work systems of the flesh, but all the flesh can ever do is develop religious systems of external morality and ethics. It cannot empower men to live up to those systems. The unsaved man can talk all he wants about God's love, but he can never produce God's unconditional love in his sinful heart. So all that any man-made religious system can produce is works of the flesh. And what what does that accomplish? Works of the flesh. The flesh profiteth nothing. That's what the scripture says. The flesh profiteth nothing and is not capable of fulfilling God's law. You know, have you ever met someone? I remember once we had an accident in Salisbury where this uh, two cars, one car piled into the back of us and then another one piled into that guy and the guy in the middle was scrunched from both ends and, and he was this man who had just bought that car that day. <laughs> Poor guy. And I took out a Gideon New Testament and we were witnessing to him while we were standing there waiting for the policeman. I kept in touch with that guy for years. And he was one of these who, who knew he was a bad guy. He knew he was a sinner. He called himself a black sheep, actually, and he said, I'm the black sheep in his, my family. But he said, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself right. I'm going to fix myself up. I'm going to do it, you know. And, and I kept saying, it's nothing you can do. You can't do it on your own. But he, and we kept in touch over the phone. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up this, and I'm going to stop this, and I'm going to, you know, stop cussing, stop smoking, stop drinking, all that, you know, stuff, and, and then I'll accept Jesus. And, and I, you know, I couldn't, it seemed like I could never get through to him, but finally he got it. And, and I got a letter years, maybe about a year later from his daughter who wrote me and said, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for that testament and for, you know, keeping up with my dad because about a year before he died, this was after he died, she wrote me this letter, but about a year before he died, he did accept Jesus Christ. And she said, oh, he was so, he was such a changed man. She said he, he um, got married to a godly woman. She, he said, she said he got into church, and he was very active in the church. And, oh, I just praise the Lord. But he was one of those who thought he could straighten himself up in the flesh and you can't do it you need god's spirit within you and then and then you can obey because then you want to obey don't you you know the law is written on your heart and you want to obey because you want to please the lord 
Well, not only did the scribes and Pharisees have a false concept of righteousness, they also had a false concept of ministry. They thought that their ministry only involved handing down God's laws to the people upon whom then they added their own heavy burdens of rules and and regulations. Yet while they were happy and eager and and, uh, happy and eager to add heavy burdens onto the backs of the people, They were not so happy and not so eager and not so willing to lift a finger to help the people um, bear those incredible burdens. Can you imagine having to obey 613 laws, some of them heavy, heavy, some of them heavy, some of them light, you know, the positives and the negatives and all that we talked about last week, having just to even remember what they are and then having all these other rules and regulations added to you about the Sabbath and about all the other things. (laughs) I mean, you would be so bent over and burdened and you just like almost want to give up. The people were really under a lot of stress and yet their religious rulers didn't lift a finger to try to help them. They made loopholes for themselves. And they felt good about themselves because they were the spiritual leaders. So, you know, if anybody's going to make it, it's going to be us. We're going to make it to heaven. But they didn't help the people. Jesus comes along and he helps the people. What did he say? What was his invitation? Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, take my yoke upon you because my my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember when we read the Sermon on the Mount? And you go, oh, wow, if I even have a bad thought in my mind, you know, I'm an adulterer, if I, I'm a murderer, and there's no way, be perfect even as I am perfect, you could go, oh, there's no way I can do that. But Jesus takes the burden away because he says, well, that's why I died for you. Because I know you can never do, fulfill the law, and so I took the burden for you. And then he gives us that rest, the freedom in Christ, right? Well, the religious rulers weren't doing this for the people, those poor people. They're so burdened. You know, that's why a lot of people go around knocking on doors and and trying to work their way into heaven. I told the ladies yesterday when I was in um, Egypt, I remember this man, old man, and he was on his knees and uh, wiping with his long hair the stairs that went up to this holy place. And they said that he came there every day and spent his whole day. Tourists are going up and down the stairs, and he would constantly go up the stairs, wiping it with his long hair, and then down the stairs, wiping it just all day because he's trying to work his way into heaven, you know, so that God would be pleased with him or Allah or whoever he, it was he, he falsely worshipped. So sad. People in false religions are very, very burdened, and we have the message that can give them freedom. Freedom in Christ. Legalistic religions such as Judaism had become always make men's burdens heavier. The Jewish religious rulers were commanding the people to do things that they themselves were not willing to do. They commanded, but they themselves did not participate. On the other hand, we have the Lord Jesus. He never asked anybody to do anything that he himself was not willing to do first. He set the example before us. That's why he can empathize with the feelings of our infirmities. He's gone before us. Well, in this final public sermon, Jesus condemned externalism, which is designed solely to impress people and gain gain men's praise. You know, they made their, Judy, where are you? They made their phylacteries. She said she'd never heard that word before. 
you know, the leather boxes that they wore on their heads with the, the shamai inside. They made them as big as they possibly could. They made the borders on their garments. Now, you know, they wore long robes. And it was actually commanded by God in the book of Numbers that they were to put a border on their garments so that when people saw them, that, that would remind them of, of God and his law. That's why they're supposed to put the border there. But, of course, they thought, well, let's enlarge our borders on our garments so that people will notice us. And that wasn't enough. They not only enlarged their garments, they add tass- added tassels to their garments. And some of the Pharisees even added bells to their <laughs> garments so that people would hear them coming and, you know, pull to the side and let them through a crowd. And then they would say, oh, good morning, rabbi, rabbi. And they just loved all of that because it was, uh, you know, bringing them the praise and the honor. Men might have been impressed with all of that, but God wasn't impressed. He wasn't impressed one single bit. He didn't care. He didn't care that men carried his law in phylacteries that took up their entire foreheads. (laughs) And uh, if they didn't love his law in their hearts... He didn't care that men had long showy tassels and even bells on the, on the bottom of their, their robes and their prayer shawls if they did not love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. For the most part, the religious leaders of Israel were motivated by pride and self-esteem. They loved, they absolutely loved having the preeminence. They loved taking the best seats in the synagogue. You know, they would, they'd probably be the last ones to get there, and they'd march up the aisle, and they'd go right to the front seat. Or better yet, they loved having the seats in the synagogues up here on the podium. That was, oh, that's, that was their thing. That's what they lived for. And they loved being in the marketplace where everybody would pull to the side and let them through and say to them, Rabbi, which was a term in Jesus' day that ma- meant great knowledgeable one. Oh, good morning, great knowledgeable one. And they just ate it up. They loved it. Unfortunately, many Christian leaders today also use their positions in the church for personal glory. Don't they? Turn on the television sometimes. Some of the egos on some of those people on television just make me vomit. Many congregations even encourage this sin by providing grandiose pulpits and elaborate costumes for their ministers and priests to wear, treating them with praise and attention that should rather be given to God. Now, I come from a background where there were great costumes. You should have been there on Easter morning to see some real elaborate costumes that they would wear. But warning against such things, the Lord next directed his commandments to uh, more to his disciples. We're going to look at verses 8 to 12 where I think he's probably speaking more to his disciples and he's talking to them about being, you know, be beware of wanting this kind of attention for yourselves. Instead, be humble. Humble, that's, you know, the key virtue of the Christian life is humility. But before we look at those verses, I want to just say three more additional thoughts on the subject of the love of preeminence. Number one, it is wrong to do anything that will draw attention to oneself instead of to the Lord. A person should not overdo or remake his outward person to draw personal attention. That's why I... 
really have a problem with some of the costumes. You know, when I came out of what I came out of and came into Protestantism, I was very pleased to see the pastor just wear a suit like the rest of the men, you know, instead of all the attention being brought to him with, with the uh, other attire. That's, that's Old Testament. The priests did in the Old Testament wear, you know, like the, the high priest wore that. But that's Old Testament. New Testament, Jesus says, we're all brethren. There is no longer the distinction between clergy and laity. If you don't believe me, look at, um, where is it? The end of verse 8. But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master. There's just one head of the church now, one master, even Christ, and all ye are what? Brethren, we're all brethren. Don't do anything to draw personal attention. You know, if you're a teacher or a minister or a missionary or if you're a uh, Sunday school teacher in the choir, we should always walk humbly among men, but walk as one of them and point them to Christ by our lives. Secondly, God has no favorites. So why should any Christian seek to appear as a favorite? Why should we seek appearance, position, and honor that would point toward us as in any way being special? You know, just because I'm up here in this, in this pulpit, I am no more special than the rest of you. I am the least of you, if you really knew me. <laughs> yeah, I have a mouth. That's obvious. I have a mouth. But, you know, God in heaven is going to honor those that are in the back. I think they're going to be the ones that really he honors. Is the ones who never get any attention and yet they keep serving and, and loving the Lord. We're going to be shocked in heaven who gets all the crowns and the glory. And, of course, they're just going to want to give it back to him. But um, I remember, and I'll just I'll never get through it, but anyway. I remember when I went to a, a Bible study I was told a lot about, and I wanted to visit it. It was up in Raleigh, and women were telling me I needed to go up there. And I went up there to this ladies' Bible study, and, um, and it was great. It was packed, and I, I had a, a wonderful time. And as I'm driving back home, I'm thinking, wow, that woman, oh, she was awesome. Oh, and I was just going on and on. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me. I thought, you know what? I'm praising her. I, I'm coming away knowing more about that lady who spoke than I am praising God, Jesus, and that I learned about Jesus. She spoke a lot about herself. I knew more about her life than I did about Jesus. And I made a commitment right then and there that I didn't want that. I want to always... You know, like John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that he might, must increase. I don't want you ever coming out of here saying, oh, Catherine, isn't she just wonderful? She's got a mouth. Big deal. <laughs> big feet, big hands, and a big mouth. <laughs> but I want, you know, he, he's a jealous guy. He don't want his glory to go to anyone else. I want you leaving here saying, isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't he marvelous? Isn't he ever, altogether lovely? And we're nobody special. So if there is anyone at all who should walk humbly before men and point them to Christ, it is the man or the woman who professes to serve God, right? If anyone among us should, should walk humbly, it's the one who professes to serve him, God, of all men. He, the minister, the pastor, should not love the appearance and the positions and the titles and honors that point toward him. 
instead of his Lord. So if there's anyone that should be humble, it should be the servants of God. Well, in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees' love for titles and of honor, the Lord declared that true, true, godly leaders are to avoid, shun, and even deny elevated spiritual titles. Special titles for God's human instruments take away the honor and the glory that belong only to God. Christ is the Christian's only true teacher in the spiritual sense in which these rabbis and scribes were addressed and treated in Israel. He is the only source of divine truth. God is the only source. Human, All human teachers and ministers and missionaries and, and whoever of his truth are merely his channels of communication to the rest of the world. So they're not to seek glory or honor for themselves, much less demand or covet it. It would be like me praising the pipes. You know, this is silly, but I was thinking about this when I was taking a bath. It would be silly for me to praise the pipes that bring the warm water into my bathtub, wouldn't it? Instead of, you know, being thankful for the water (laughs) and the the heat in my um, water heater that makes the water warm. If I was praising the pipes that brought the water to me, and see, all that any teacher or, or a minister is, is a channel. He's a pipe. He's not, he's not the source of truth, nor um, the eliminator, illuminator of truth. Illuminator? Did I say that? Yeah, illuminator of truth. The source of truth is God's word, and the illuminator of the truth is who? God the Holy Spirit. So it'd be like a pipe. Now, you know, we don't want a lot of holes in our pipes. And that's why, you know, you don't want a faulty minister with holes because the water might not get to you, the warm water. <laughs> so you do, you do want the pipe not to have any holes in it, to be sincere and true. Anyway, that was my silly little example, but I think you get the point. All Christians, including the disciples to whom Christ directly spoke, are brothers with all other believers. So no man's calling and no man's God-given gifts enable him to justify bearing a title that is to portray him or her as being spiritually superior to any other believer. Well, not only did Jesus forbid the disciples and all future leaders to use the title of rabbi or master for anyone other than himself, but he also forbade them to use the title father with reference to a superior spiritual position. God alone is Father. God alone is the source of all spiritual life and blessing. It's not wrong to use the term Father when you're speaking speaking of your biological father. Okay, get that all straight. But it is wrong to use the title when addressing a spiritual leader because it implies that he is a source of spiritual life. You see, fathers produce life, right? So to call... A spiritual leader, Father, is signifying that he is the producer of life. And he isn't. He's just the pipe. (laughs) He's, He's just the channel. The Lord Jesus is our teacher, and God is our heavenly Father, and no person has a right to usurp the titles belonging to Christ or to God. Now, this might not mean much to some of you, but it does to me, because I grew up calling my priest Father, Father Lotto. And this is one of the verses, when I became a Christian, I was not discipled. 
No one discipled me, but I started reading the Bible. And when I got to this verse, it just was like, whoa, it just jumped out at me. Call no one father, that's all I'd ever done my whole childhood. It's wrong. It's wrong. You don't call any man father. And you know what the term pope is, where it comes from? Papa. It's another term for father. While it is true that God has placed spiritual leaders in the church, it's also true that he did not intend for them to replace himself in their lives. A true leader in the church will guide his flock into faith in Christ, freedom in Christ, and having closer fellowship with Christ. He will not bring them into bondage to his own ideas and interpretations or into a fan club for himself. Now, I'm sorry, but there are some preachers that I've seen on television that are just developing a big fan club for themselves. And ego, ego, ego is written all over them. And it just turns me off. <clears throat> the Lord, well, next he repeated the rule for true, true greatness. We've heard this many times in our Life of Christ study, but he repeats it again. There was a formula he had made on many previous occasions, but it was worth restating, so he did. He says, and this is in verses 11 and 12, but he that is greatest among you shall be your, what? Servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. The Lord was telling his disciples again that contrary to the ways of the world and the ways of the scribes and the Pharisees, who prided themselves on their exalted positions in society, Christian leaders are to be servants of others. They're to be characterized by what? What's the queen virtue of the Christian life? Humility. Servanthood, humility. They're to be characterized by humility. John the Baptist understood that, didn't he, when he said, I must decrease and he must increase. One of the truest signs of spiritual maturity is a believer who talks more of Christ than of himself. You know, I do that. If I go somewhere else and I listen to a message, I will see, does that person talk more about himself or more about Christ? That's what we're supposed to do. In his humanity, he again gave us the example because in his humanity, he was the servant of servants. Just as in his deity, he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. He came not to be ministered unto, but to do what? To minister, to give his life a ransom for many. If Christ the master was a servant of all, then surely we who are far less than him must also be the servants of others. True greatness in the kingdom of God is something that no man can earn by climbing a ladder of popularity or power. It only comes as he humbly and submissively obeys God. The world tells us to look out for number one, right? Numero uno. You deserve it. <laughs> but God has decreed otherwise. Self-promotion and self-interest and selfishness should have no place in the hearts of those who represent his son. <clears throat> 